as you think about greatness, really that is the issue of, that we're going to look in tonight for Colossians chapter 2, because through the book of Colossians, you are finding your supremacy in a philosophy, in an idea, in a person, in a subject, in a thing of this world, or you are finding your sufficiency, you are deeming something supreme, and that person is God Himself. There's not one person here tonight that is not living in the light of what they deem as supreme. Maybe it is something that you hope to achieve. Maybe it is something you fear you will lose if you don't focus on preserving it. But whatever that is, what is it that holds that supremacy in your life? And that supreme thing I would contend tonight is what you and I deem as truly great or as the greatest. So how does Paul, in the book of Colossians and in many other epistles... How does Paul make Christ look great? One theologian put it this way, Answer, by experiencing Christ as such a treasure that everything else in his life is as nothing by comparison. Paul makes Christ look great and proclaims his greatness by saying that everything else in his life is not less than but is nothing in comparison. Think about how we do that with certain things in this life, whether it is someone that we have held up as maybe the smartest or most brilliant person, someone who is the most wealthy in our day, someone um, maybe who is an athlete that just excels above everyone else. Maybe Maybe it's a racehorse that's won the triple crown the Derby and the Preakness and, and the other one that I can't remember right now. Something stakes, I'm sure. But either way, it's, 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 that, it's that one individual, that one um, person that, that kind of sets themselves apart from everyone else. But I guarantee you, they're just a little bit better than the rest. It would be very difficult for you to say, that person is so great that everyone else is nothing in comparison That's what Paul says when he says, I count all things but loss. All things. That's always puzzled me. Everything, Paul, really? Everything is as loss in comparison? Money as loss. Food as loss. Looks. My appearance as loss. Friends as loss. Family as loss. Job and success as loss. Graduation as loss. As loss in comparison with the treasure that Christ has become for me. So, how do you make Christ look great in your life and not waste your life? Take some of those things we just mentioned. Money is given to you and I so that you might use money in such a way that shows that money is not your treasure, Christ is. It's not that money isn't useful, that money isn't needed, it isn't necessary. In comparison to knowing Christ, it's loss, it's nothing. But when I use money 
when I have money, how do I spend it? How do I use it in such a way that shows to the world that that is not my treasure? Food, the same way. Friends, family, computers, phones, houses, property, cars, anything that you possess is given to us so that you might use them in such a way that it might be plain to the world that they are not your treasure. Christ is. I was reading this theologian who is just dumping all of this on me as I'm reading. I'm, I'm asking myself, is Christ supreme in my life? Do I really view Him as great? As the greatest? Is He everything to me? The way we display the supreme worth of Jesus is by treasuring Him above all things and making choices which make the joy that we have in His supreme worth manifest to the world. Christ is supreme in every way, over everything. As the next slide um, will attest, Abraham Kuyper says this, an old theologian, long gone, but his words remain. And he says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry, Mine. So Christ is not just the greatest. He's the owner of it all. We're the stewards. We're the managers. He's the owner. He's not just supreme in His greatness. He's supreme because He's the Creator. And if you follow Paul's logic through the book of Colossians, this is where he's going. There is no one greater. There is no one like him. There is no one more supreme. And there's no one more preeminent. However, I find in my life this struggle where Christ definitely is prominent in my life at times, but is he preeminent? Do I really face each choice in the nitty gritty of life? Am I going through even the daily mundane tasks? whether it's parenting, whether it's teaching um, at the school or, or going on a youth activity as we will do this summer many, in many places? Am I looking for ways to display how Christ is great and supreme in my life? Because He, before I even woke up this morning, has already cried, Mine, this day belongs to Me. Your life belongs to Me. The chorus we sing that's from the book of Psalms. This is the day that the Lord has what? Made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because the day's circumstances are going to make me happy? No, because this is the day He has laid out for me. It's His day. And my parents used to tell me this is, you know, Sunday is not the only Lord's day. It is His day. But so is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's all His. Oh, that the Almighty God would help us see and savor the supremacy of His Son. And as we give ourselves to this, as we seek to cultivate this passion tonight in looking at the Word, I want you to eat and drink and, and sleep this quest to know the supremacy of Christ. Pray that God would show you these things in His Word. Let's join together and pray. Lord, as we look at Colossians 2 tonight, 
Our prayer is that we would be rooted in You, established and built up in You, to know that You are our source of life itself. You're the owner. You're the proprietor of our lives. Lord, give us, give us grace to do this. Give us eyes to see this. Give us ears to, to listen and hear with intentionality what You're saying. Lord, I pray that as Your messenger tonight that I would just melt away from this platform and that they would only see the Word as I stumble and, and to try to grasp, Lord, the, the immensity of this passage and communicate it clearly, I pray that in this, even in spite of me, Lord, that You would be honored and glorified. This passage is so rich. And I pray, Lord, that You would explain and interpret with Your Holy Spirit's power tonight for these people, for these dear people of Timberlake, who I love and who You love more than they could ever imagine. Lord, you desire to reveal yourself tonight through your word, not conceal yourself. And so help us to lean in to receive this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin reading in Colossians 2, verse 6. As he has been declaring this supremacy of Christ, then here comes the big transition. Therefore, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord or the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it, or beware, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary or elemental principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all of your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. First of all, I'm going to do four points here tonight. First of all, your life begins and continues in Christ. This is a walk in Him. This is a walk in Christ. Christ Jesus as Lord. Or Christ Jesus the Lord. We often think today that Jesus must be a part of our lives. He must be important in our lives. We think that Jesus plus something else might equal everything. 
adding Jesus to my lifestyle, adding Jesus to what I'm already the worldly pursuits I'm already engaging in. Adding Jesus to to the murky pool water that's in my yard or whatever that I'm trying to shock and trying to make into chlorine. What we need instead is to see Jesus as everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. You see, everyone lives in a kingdom as we have been reading. If you will read Colossians 1, you will notice that. There's only one king, either King Satan or God the king. And you can live in that kingdom of evil or you can live in the kingdom of His dear Son, Jesus Christ, in righteousness. But when God becomes your king, you are bought back from hell because Christ paid the price. You've been forgiven of all your sins, all sins you've ever committed or would ever commit because of the death of Christ. And so now, as you have received Jesus, as you have received Him, the Bible tells us to walk in light of that. The exhortation here, Paul's giving the Colossians a warning about religion and told them to continue to live in Christ just as they have received Him, just as they were instructed. You see, Jesus wasn't just some miracle worker, some great teacher to these Colossians. Here He is telling us He has exclusive claims for our worship. Nothing should be higher in our affections. Paul makes it clear that this teaching wasn't just His idea. This was what God had established. So when you were born again, just as these Colossians, you received Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's take that apart there. Christ Jesus as Lord. These aren't just titles that Paul is just randomly throwing in. When I speak to the students, many of them you know, are surprised that Jesus Christ is not His first and last name. These are titles. This is, you know, Jesus is His name. Christ is His title, the Messiah. Lord is another title for Christ, for Jesus. So let's take those apart. Because receiving Him is not just simply accepting Him. It's receiving Him as Jesus, as Christ, as Lord, and all of His fullness. So what did they do? They received Him as the Christ. Christos, Messiah, Anointed One. The Messiah who fulfilled all of the prophecies. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. When you see Christ, you need to think about Messiah and all of the theological freight that's pulled by that, by that title. From the Old Testament all the way into the New. The, the long-awaited, expected, anointed One who would come to redeem Israel and redeem the Gentiles from all their sins. You're receiving Him. You're saying there's no one else. You're the One. You're the only One. And then Jesus. The histor- yes, a historical person rooted in the humanity of the Incarnation, of course. But He's our Savior. He is... The Lord of, is salvation. He is the captain of our salvation. No other name is given among heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus, the One who brings salvation. He's my only rescue. He's my only hope. And then Lord. 
Master, the One who is sovereign and superior. Lord gathers up all that Paul has previously said about Christ in Colossians. He is their sovereign. They would bow before Him and confess Him as their Lord. So when you're looking at how does my life begin spiritually, it begins by receiving Jesus as Christ and Lord, as Savior, but it also continues in that as well. The the Gnostics that were so prevalent in Paul's time here, they they were saying you had to have some special knowledge about God in order to enter into the kingdom. It was some hidden knowledge that that no one else knew. It was was only to be gotten through experience and discovery. Seeing emanations of and visions of the Lord. No, it's been revealed in Scripture. And the safeguard against this false teaching is that perpetual bowing before Christ Jesus the Lord. That we are Christ and our sins are forgiven. I want to, on the outset here, I want to encourage you with this because, yes, your life begins by confessing Christ as Lord and focusing on that, but it also continues that way. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him and remember who the Him is that you're walking in. But secondly, your source of life is rooted in Christ. Your source of life is rooted in Christ. This is not just a walk in Him. This is a walk in rooted faith. Faith that is grounded with overflowing gratitude. Paul's reminding the Colossians that they have been been grounded in Christ. But we've seen this before. Remember in Psalm 1? Who is the man who is truly blessed? Blessed is the man who does not what? You remember? Does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. And then comes this illustration that is so vivid for us. No matter if you lived in Old Testament times, New Testament times, 2014, we see these beautiful creations all around us. And He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, the roots going deep, bearing fruit. As I was preparing for this, I was thinking of, what is it really like to see a tree's root system? And why didn't he just say tree? Why did he say rooted and grounded? Well, as I was studying this, many of you who are more arborists and you uh, probably know more than I do about this, but the root system of a tree is equal to the spread of its branches. Think of that. Though there are many exceptions, there is the exception of that huge, um, probably pronouncing it wrong, but but Sagaro, the big cactuses you see in the northwest. But for the most part, a tree's root system is very much equal to the spread of its branches. However, there are oak trees 
that if you were to combine the length of all the roots from end to end, it would total several hundred miles. And I didn't just get that from Wikipedia. I didn't believe it at first. Hundreds of miles. I mean, even a birch tree, which is less sturdy than many others, can lift a boulder weighing 20 tons because of its strong root system. The root system is everything to the tree. It has to plunge deep into the ground. It's not just, it just can't be planted um, with, a, with this root shooting out barely so that when the rain comes, it can just soak it up from the surface. No, it's going to find the water and the root system is going to go as deep as possible, sometimes a hundred feet if it needs to. The roots function as an anchor and the roots collect the moisture and without that, the tree dies. We are told to remember our roots and foundation. We are, we are to be completely dependent upon Christ. To be rooted in Him. We're not to go as root system trying to dig around and trying to find water. We know where it is. It's, it's in Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. How do the branches grow? How is the fruit produced? If you're just looking above the ground, that's not going to be the right answer. It's really below the surface you find why it's growing. He is the foundation. We are the building. We have been built up in Him, established in Him, it says here in Colossians 2. But notice that these words here in Colossians 2, 7, let me just read it to you. Having been firmly rooted and now having been built up in Him and established in our faith. Notice that all of these are in the passive tense. Past tense. This has happened to you. This is happening to you. It's not something that you have to do on your own. You are already grafted and, and grounded and rooted in Christ. So endeavor to be established in the faith which you believed and were taught in the beginning. He says here, just as you were instructed. Believers are in Christ as trees are rooted in the earth. And the building illustration, being built up in Him, that foundation rests on Christ. We don't have to find the foundation. We don't have to lay the foundation. It's already been done for us. So what is there for us to do here? He says, so walk in Him. Live in light of this. Remember that you have been rooted in Christ. You have already been established. Some of us feel contrary to this. Our feelings, as Pastor Jeff told us this morning, sometimes betray us. We feel like we've been uprooted. We feel like our root system is going anywhere but finding water. We feel like we're dying on the vine. And that's what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to, in verse 8 we're going to see this, we have maybe been taken captive by other philosophies, lies. 
When in reality, the true reality is not our perception, but we have been rooted in Him. We have to root our faith, our belief in Christ. God is the one who rooted them in in Jesus, the Colossian believers. He's the one who's rooted us in Christ. He gives us strength. That's why I put there the source of our life. To be rooted in Christ is to recognize He is the source of what I need. And all that's left for the Colossians in here, the command is to what? Have a thankful spirit. To walk in gratitude. To have it just overflow, your heart overflow with gratitude. Let me ask you something. As I was studying this, I was thinking to myself, have I moved on from just a cliche-ridden Christianity for a profound head and heart study of God's Word with my eye on the magnificence of Christ, that I've been rooted in Him? He alone roots us in Christ. We've been firmly established in this. And Christ encourages us to go deeper. A healthy Christian's walk also spills over with gratitude and praise. We can't contain it. It's what he's saying here. It's overflowing. It's over the top. We just we are so full of gratitude that we express it to others. But not just the source of life being rooted in Christ and our life begins and continues in Christ, but there's also this walk of resistance as we are rooted. You know, when, when those... Um, tough times come and, and the waves, so to speak, are beating up against you or, or the fires come through the forest. The trees that are firmly rooted survive. The resistance is what is in verse 8. See to it, he says, beware that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. Don't be captured by these things, he's saying. Beware lest anyone take you captive to your eternal ruin. Paul's warning here is these three characteristics that you see here. He is shouting the bridges out. He is saying, don't go there. But how many people have have we seen, maybe you've seen it in your own life, where... You, you know this. You know that what you're about to do is going to be destructive to you or your family, and yet you just think that maybe you'll be the exception. Beware, he says. See to it. It's kind of a military term. Telling the general, see to it. Get this done. Make sure this happens. Beware. It's a warning to us. And so we see in verse 8 that It was deceptive, these vain teachings that were going on in Colossae. They were man-centered. They they were enslaving. Think about that first one, deceptive. You know, it sounds great, but it's empty. It's like clouds that, that look full of rain, but just pass by. They look like they're good. They look like that it's about to rain. They look the same as the other clouds do when it's about to rain, but but yet it doesn't. It's deceptive to us. We've all heard such talk in politics at times or in the realm of academia or even religion or science. The debates 
between the atheist and the Christian. You know, the, the, the people on the other side seem to be so learned. They seem to have it all together. They seem to have the refutations to, to throw back at the Christian. You know, my position is based on science. My position is based on reason. My position is based on what I know to be true. And they're trusting in something that is completely void of truth and is empty. They might as well be giving you a balloon. It looks full, but inside there's nothing in it. It's man-centered, based on human tradition, not God-centered. It's enslaving. It's, it's, it's being, it's, it's, it takes you captive, as if it were prisoners being led away by victorious armies, having a death-like grip on the people that they have taken. See to it, he says. See to it that no one takes you captive. Let me encourage you, because maybe some of you are going, how do I stand firm against this? Because the onslaught of worldliness is right in our face. And, and I used to think that worldliness, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of possessions, that's something that's, that's, um, that's in different pockets of our country. But definitely not here in Lynchburg, or maybe not in my home where I grew up in Georgia, or or maybe not outside, it's probably outside my home. It's out there that I have to do battle. And what I'm realizing is I'm swimming in worldliness constantly. It's, it's right in front of us. We deal with it constantly in our lives. And Peter has something to say about this too. 1 Peter 5.8, we know this, be sober, be on the alert, be vigilant, be watchful. Be serious-minded. Why? Because there's an adversary and he is prowling about doing what? Seeking. He's seeking whom he may devour. But don't end with that verse. Because verse 9 says, So resist him. Ever seen that next verse and thought, How is that possible? Resist him. By doing what? By standing Firm, that word firm is rooted or grounded in your faith. That walk of resistance, grounded in my faith, that has an object. That object is Christ, my Messiah, Jesus, the one who saved me, Lord, my Master. 1 John 2 is very, is very similar in this. 1 John 2, I'll just read it to you here. 1 John 2, 14 through 17. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Therefore, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is from the world The world is passing away, also its lusts, but he who does the will of God lives or abides forever. We're seeking not to be tethered to this world's pursuits, tethered to this world's lusts, but we have to be firmly entrenched in the Word. The Word of God abides in you. It's taken root. It's taken up residence in you. Believe it. Live it. Walk in light of that. And stand firm. But not only that, 
your life has also been made complete in Christ. You see where Paul is just building this. This is so exciting for me as a, as a Christian to see I've received this Christ, this Messiah, this Jesus, the one who saved me, this Lord, my Master. And I find my source in Him. He is, he's rooted me in Himself. He's done this for me. He's given me everything I need for life and godliness. And then if that's not enough, He says, I am going to complete you. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. I love that. You've been outfitted. You've been made complete. And He is the head of overall rule and authority. To be completed with Christ's love and power is fullness of life. A life that lacks nothing. Why would you settle for anything else? This should steal us away from being taken captive by deceitful, empty philosophies. You see the play on words here. Empty deceit. Empty lies. Empty promises that the world is making. Fullness of God is what Christ is offering. You see the difference? Emptiness. Fullness. Lacking everything. Ruin awaits you. Destruction awaits you. Not lacking anything complete. This just blasted the Gnostics' idea that fullness came through something else, through angels or through emanations of the Lord. No, it's in Christ. I hope we will say as the disciples, as Peter said in John 6, 68, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Christ has all the fullness of deity in Him. There's an illustration that is very helpful for us to, as we understand this. If you have a chance to go to the Pacific Ocean, imagine if you are standing there on the shore. And you probably just feel like I have before, one finite dot in a seemingly infinite expanse of ocean. And as you stand there, maybe you've taken a cup or a jar like this and you've, and you've sought to put it into the ocean. Maybe you're trying to get some seashells or get some sand in there or whatever. And in an instant, your jar is completely filled, even overflowing, with a portion of the Pacific Ocean. But it is impossible for you to take this little jar and fill all the fullness of the Pacific Ocean in this container, right? It would be impossible. You're just one finite dot in that ocean right now. And you're taking a small jar and trying to take a portion of it, but there's no way you could take the fullness of that ocean into your jar. But realizing that Christ is infinite, He has, it says here, all of the fullness of deity all of the fullness of God dwells in bodily form when He walked this earth. And when He is, and as He is in heaven, all of the fullness of God dwells in Him. And ever one of us, as finite creatures, dips our tiny vessel of life into Him, we instantly become full of His fullness. 
So we are not like Christ and being able to have all the fullness of deity in us, but as we dip our vessels into Him, we have His fullness in us. That's what He's saying here. You have been filled to the top. You've been completed, He's saying. You've been filled not just with things that will make your life easier here on earth. It's not, that's not what He's saying here. You've been filled with the fullness of Christ. The One who is head over all rule and authority. In Christ we have this fellowship with God. Only Christ can fill you so your life is complete, lacking nothing. John MacArthur has a great quote about this. He says, What the Christian Gospel is, is simply this. All the answers you need for time and eternity are in Christ. All the answers for your soul. All the answers for your sin. All the answers for your hope for the life to come. They're all in Christ. And only in Christ. Which is a very important distinction. There is no other authority in the Bible. There is no other Savior than Jesus Christ. And you will find everything you could ever desire or need in Him. That's why Colossians 2.10 tells us, in Him you have been made complete. But not just that. We're going to end with this. Your life will never be the same because of Christ. As if it could get any better. To me, those first three points are so encouraging. To know that I've been given everything I need. I'm, I'm fully completed. I'm fully outfitted. I'm, I'm connected to the vine. I have everything I need. and I've been rooted in, in Christ. And, and I began my life because of Christ rescuing me. And I continue to walk in Him. But now there's this walk of victory and newness. Your life is forever changed. You'll never go back to the way things used to be. See, how do I know that? Let's read, beginning in verse 11. And in Him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What he is saying here is, in Christ we've been given a new nature. Even Moses pointed out to the Israelites that after they were circumcised, they really needed their hearts to be circumcised, he says, by God Himself. And that's what's happened here. We've been given new hearts, new lives. Christ has forgiven our sin and given us new hearts. Our old sinful rebellious nature was put to death on the cross. Our old sinful nature was buried in the grave with Him. Christ was raised in newness of life, resurrection life. This body of flesh, he says, the removal of that body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with Him through the faith and the working of God who raised Him from the dead. That beautiful picture of baptism. We, you hear Pastor Farrell say this. Maybe other pastors who you have seen, you know, they say, you know, buried Him in His death, raised to walk in what? Newness of life. Don't let that be a Christian cliche. That is the reality of what happens to you in the Gospel. So the death that He died, you die. The burial 
You were buried. He was raised. You have been raised. Christ crucified the old nature on the cross. You know, every other religion will tell you the opposite. Every other religion will tell you to work hard so that maybe we can please God or maybe we can attain with our own righteousness. The heart that you have just needs to be adjusted. You just need to tweak what you already have. But if what you have is broken and shattered and, and useless, more of the same of useless, broken, and shattered is not going to help you. You need newness. You need victory. You need forgiveness. You need a new heart and a new life. Christ did not come to tweak our old nature. He came to abolish and kill and destroy it and give us a new nature. So every other religion says work hard so that you can attain and please God. Christianity says God has worked hard through Jesus Christ on the cross so that we can be pleasing to God and find our pleasure through Him and in Him. Think of it this way. Sin does not have the power over you that it once did. Sin is a defeated enemy in Christianity. The curse has been lifted. Judgment has been reversed. Your sins have been done away with. You are not going to be done away with. The lies of sin have no power over you anymore. That old self, the person we were before conversion, has been crucified with Christ. This is the fullness that Christ is offering us in this passage. We are now free to live life to the fullest, free from the domination of sin. You know, in a world that's always seeking a full life, believers are the only ones that this is possible for. But there's even more. The fullness of this blossoms in our participation in the resurrection. Look at what he says here, verse 12. Even buried with him in baptism, raised up with him through the faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in, the dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, canceling the debt or the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, taking it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Think of it this way, the debt that you and I owe, the eternal torments of hell are not enough to pay back this debt. That's how big this debt is. This isn't going to be worked off by 30 hours of community service. This isn't going to be worked off after being in purgatory for a few years. The eternal torments of hell are not enough to pay back this debt. All the religions of the world should be judged by its ability to deal with this problem. And there's only one truth. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The one who says, you can't pay back this debt. It's impossible for you. Your sins stack as high past the heavens. There's no way you can ever reconcile this debt. You can't, you can't in, a, in some winsome way, get your way out of this. You can't. It's a penalty that is on your head. 
And Christ says, I will take that debt that we owe to God upon Himself. And He takes that certificate of debt. And what does He do? He mounts it on the cross. And He is then nailed to the cross with our debt on His shoulders. That is the hymn that you're to walk in. That is the hymn that you are that, that, that you received when you became a Christian. That is the one who says, I have had victory over sin, over hell, over death, over the debt that you were under. I've released you from that bondage. In other words, the cross was enough. It really did pay your debts. It really did pay my debts. Christ has freed us from punishment here, from everlasting torment, and He loves us as He does it. This is a very vivid imagery here. He's he's not just saying, you've been forgiven, okay, let's move on to better things. He just continues to explain it in this vivid imagery of Him being nailed to the cross, and as He's nailed to the cross, that debt is being nailed to Him when it should have been nailed to me should have been nailed to you. We are now free, not just from sin itself. We're now free from the accusations. No, He still owes this debt. You can't set Him free. And Christ says, you better believe He's free. You better believe she is free because of what I have done. I took it on Myself. And I'm without sin. And I became sin so that they are now the righteousness of God in Him. This is, this is such a... That's why I'm saying this passage is so rich. There is no way for me to give you all that is here. I encourage you to read and study this on your own. But it actually gets better than this. He ends in verse 15 saying that He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has disarmed them. What does that mean? That he's just taken away their weapons? He's taken away their power. They have nothing to throw at us. And not only that, he has made a public example, public display of them. This is the idea of this illustration of triumph. A triumphal procession in the streets of Rome where there would be a celebration of a military victory where the conquered rulers and authorities would be put on display it would actually take them three days to do this. Great scaffolds were put up and along the boulevards of Rome and there were spectator seating. All of Rome would, would, would turn out for this. On the first day, 259 chariots would be displayed in the procession of the, of the people. The second day, wagons bearing the armor of all the, of all the conquered enemies and all their gold and silver and treasures would be paraded through the crowd. On the third day, the last day, would come the captives. The king's chariot that they captured. The crown that he wore. His armor. The king's servants would walk through the streets with their hands outstretched, weeping. They were commanded to do this. Begging for mercy. Next came the king's children. And then the king himself, clad entirely in black, followed by the endless prisoners of war. But finally, 
the victorious general, seated on the chariot, dressed in a robe of purple with pure gold interwoven, would come following in the chariot of their commander, singing songs of triumph. That's the picture here. He is making them a public example, marching them through the streets and saying, you are defeated. You have no more power. He wants us to see here, Paul is telling us, even though these enemies still exist, they are defeated. Satan's demons have been sentenced to be in the train of God's victory parade. Thus, we no longer need to fear them. Christ has conquered. And what does it say in Romans 8? What did He tell the Roman believers? You have become more than conquerors. Superabounding conquerors through Him who loved us. So in view of all of this, is your life rooted in Christ? Why look to anyone else or anything else for, but Christ for fullness? In Christ and Christ alone, we've been forgiven and brought into fellowship with God. And we continue in that. We remember that our life is rooted in that. We remember that our life has been made complete and lacking nothing and that our life will never be the same. There's no going back. Christ's defeat was complete. It was utter victory. Unanimous decision. So what more could you ask for? What more are you seeking? Are you rooted in Christ? Christ.